The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken! And observe how healthy, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain. But, once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I would put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening, so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then... When my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh so cautiously, cautiously for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed, to suspect that every night just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, 
as if startled. Now, you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness. For the shutters were close fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he would not see the opening of the door and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my, I had my head in and I was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in the bed crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no, it was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first light noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or, it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a single dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot out from the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open. And I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you, make, that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum 
stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder. I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous, so I am. And now at the dead of at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, only once. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had got all. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentleman welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man I mentioned was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. 
I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But, ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My heart ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness, until, at length, I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles, in a high key, and with violent gesticulations. But the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury, by the observations of the men. But the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God! No, no, they heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now again, hark, louder. Louder, louder, louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. The End Ruskin Bond. I was still a thief when I met Arun, and though I was only fifteen, I was an experienced and fairly successful hand. Arun was watching the wrestlers when I approached him. He was about twenty, a tall, lean fellow, and he looked kind and simple enough for my purpose. I hadn't had much luck of late 
and thought I might be able to get into this young person's confidence. He seemed quite fascinated by the wrestling. Two well-oiled men slid about in the soft mud, grunting and slapping their thighs. When I drew Arun into conversation, he didn't seem to realize I was a stranger. You look like a wrestler yourself, I said. So do you, he replied, which put me out of my stride for a moment because at the time I was rather thin and bony and not very impressive physically. Yes, I said. I wrestle sometimes. What's your name? Deepak, I lied. Deepak was about my fifth name. I had earlier called myself Rambir, Sudhir, Trilok and Surinder. After this preliminary exchange, Arun confined himself to comments on the match and I didn't have much to say. After a while, he walked away from the crowd of spectators. I followed him. Hello, he said. Enjoying yourself? I gave him my most appealing smile. I want to work for you, I said. He didn't st uh, stop walking. And what makes you think I want someone to work for me? Well, I said, I've been wandering about all day looking for the best person to work for. When I saw you, I knew that no one else had a chance. You flatter me, he said. That's all right. But you can't work for me. Why not? Because I can't pay you. I thought that over for a minute. Perhaps I had misjudged my man. Can you feed me? I asked. Can you cook? He countered. I can cook. I lied. If you can cook, he said, I'll feed you. He took me to his room and told me I could sleep in the veranda. But I was nearly back on the street that night. The meal I cooked must have been pretty awful because Arun gave it to the neighbor's cat and told me to be off. But I just hung around, smiling in my most appealing way, and then he couldn't help laughing. He sat down on the bed and laughed for a full five minutes, and later patted me on the head and said, Never mind, he teach me to cook in the morning. Not only did he teach me to cook, but he taught me to write my name and his, and said he would soon teach me to write whole sentences and add money on paper when you didn't have any in your pocket. It was quite pleasant working for Arun. I made the tea in the morning and later went out shopping. I would take my time buying the day's supplies and make a profit of about 25 pies a day. I would tell Arun that rice was 56 pies a pound, it generally was, but I would get it at 50 pies a pound. I think he knew I made a little this way, but he didn't mind. He wasn't giving me a regular wage. I was really grateful to Arun for teaching me to write. I knew that once I could write like an educated man, there would be no limit to what I could achieve. It might even be an incentive to be honest. 
Arun made money by fits and starts. He would be borrowing one week, lending the next. He would keep worrying about his next check, but as soon as it arrived, he would go out and celebrate lavishly. One evening, he came home with a wad of notes, and at night, I saw him tuck the bundles under his mattress at the head of the bed. I had been working for Arun for nearly a fortnight, and, apart from the shopping, hadn't done much to exploit him. I had every opportunity for doing so. I had a key to the front door, which meant I had access to the room whenever Arun was out. He was the most trusting person I had ever met, and that was why I couldn't make up my mind to rob him. It's easy to rob a greedy man because he deserves to be robbed. It's easy to rob a rich man because he can afford to be robbed. But it's difficult to rob a poor man, even one who really doesn't care if he is robbed. A rich man or a greedy man or a careful man wouldn't keep his money under a pillow or mattress. He'd lock it up in a safe place. Arun had put his money where it would be child's play for me to remove it without his knowledge. It's time I did some real work, I told myself, and getting out of practice. If I don't take the money, he'll only waste it on his friends. He doesn't even pay me. Arun was asleep. Moonlight came in from the veranda and fell across the bed. I sat up on the floor, my blanket wrapped round me, considering the situation. There was quite a lot of money in that vat and if I took it, I would have to leave town. I might make the 10.30 express to Amritsar. Slipping out of the blanket, I crept on all fours through the door and up to the bed and peeped at Arun. He was sleeping peacefully, with a soft and easy breathing. His face was clear and unlined. Even I had more markings on my face, though mine were mostly scars. My hand took on an identity of its own as it slid around under the mattress, the fingers searching for the notes. They found them, and I drew them out without a crackle. Arun sighed in his sleep and turned on his side towards me. My free hand was resting on the bed, and his hair touched my fingers. I was frightened when his hair touched my fingers and crawled quickly and quietly out of the room. When I was in the street, I began to run. I ran down the bazaar road to the station. The shops were all closed, but a few lights were on in the upper windows. I had the notes at my waist, held there by the string of my pajamas. I felt I had to stop and count the notes, though I knew it might make me late for the train. It was already 10.20 by the clock tower. I slowed down to a walk and my fingers flicked through the notes. There were about a hundred rupees in fives, a good haul. I could live like a prince for a month or two. When I reached the station, I did not stop at the ticket office. I had never bought a ticket in my life, 
but dashed straight onto the platform. The Amritsar Express was just moving out. It was moving slowly enough for me to be able to jump on the footboard of one of the carriages, but I hesitated for some urgent, unexplainable reason. I hesitated long enough for the train to leave without me. When it had gone, and the noise and busy confusion of the platform had subsided, I found myself standing alone on the deserted platform. The knowledge that I had a hundred stolen rupees in my pyjamas only increased my feeling of isolation and loneliness. I had no idea where to spend the night. I had never kept any friends because sometimes friends can be one's undoing. I didn't want to make myself conspicuous by staying at a hotel and the only person I knew really well in town was the person I had robbed. Leaving the station, I walked slowly through the bazaar, keeping to dark, deserted alleys. I kept thinking of Arun. He would still be asleep, blissfully unaware of his loss. I have made a study of men's faces when they have lost something of material value. The greedy man shows panic. The rich man shows anger. The poor man shows fear. But I knew that neither panic, nor anger, nor fear would show on Arun's face when he discovered the theft. Only a terrible sadness, not for the loss of the money, but for my having betrayed his trust. I found myself on the medan and sat down on a bench with my feet tucked under my haunches. The night was a little cold and I regretted not having brought Arun's blanket along. A light drizzle added to my discomfort. Soon it was raining heavily. My shirt and pyjamas stuck to my skin and a cold wind brought the rain whipping across my face. I told myself that sleeping on a bench was something I should have been used to by now, but the veranda had softened me. I walked back to the bazaar and sat down on the steps of a closed shop. A few vagrants lay beside me. Rolling up, rolled up tight in thin blankets. The clock showed midnight. I felt for the notes. They were still with me, but had lost their crispness and were damp with rainwater. Arun's money. In the morning, he would probably have given me a rupee to go to the pictures, but now I had it all. No more cooking his meals, running to the bazaar, were learning to write whole sentences. Whole sentences. They were something I had forgotten in the excitement of a hundred rupees. Whole sentences, I knew, could one day bring me more than a hundred rupees. It was a simple matter to steal, and sometimes just as simple to be caught. But to be a really big man, a wise and successful man, that was something. I should go back to Arun, I told myself, if only to learn how to write. Perhaps it was also concern for Arun that drew me back. A sense of sympathy was one of my weaknesses, and through hesitation over a theft, I had often been caught. A successful thief must be pitiless. I was fond of Arun.
my affection for him, my sense of sympathy, but most of all, my desire to write whole sentences drew me back to the room. I hurried back to the room extremely nervous, for it is easier to steal something than to return it undetected. If I was caught beside the bed now with the money in my hand or with my hand under the mattress, there could be only one explanation, that I was actually stealing. If Arun woke up, I would be lost. I opened the door clumsily and stood in the doorway in clouded moonlight. Gradually, my eyes became accustomed to the darkness of the room. Arun was still asleep. I went on all fours again and crept noiselessly to the head of the bed. My hand came up with the notes. I felt his breath on my fingers. I was fascinated by his tranquil features and easy breathing and remained motionless for a while. Then my hand explored the mattress, found the edge, slipped under it with the notes. I awoke late next morning to find that Arun had already made the tea. I found it difficult to face him in the harsh light of day. His hand was stretched out towards me. There was a five-rupee note between his fingers. My heart sank. I made some money yesterday, he said. Now you'll get paid regularly. My spirit rose as rapidly as it had fallen. I congratulated myself on having returned the money. But when I took the note, I realized that he knew everything. The note was still wet from last night's rain. Today I'll teach you to write a little more than your name, he said. He knew, but neither his lips nor his eyes said anything about their knowing. I smiled at Arun in my most appealing way, and the smile came by itself without my knowing it. The End <laughs>